Welcome back to The Mentors. This is Vadim. And Sergey. And you're listening to a show where we tell stories of ordinary people that became extraordinary entrepreneurs, leaders, and creators despite lack of experience, money, or connections. And today on the show, we have Vu Van, who is the founder of Elsa Now, which is an English language speech assistant. That's what Elsa stands for. And we're actually a little bit bummed because we were supposed to meet Vu at South by Southwest last week and do this recording that we're doing with you now live. But you know, in these quickly changing times, we have to adjust and persevere. And Vu was kind enough to agree to do this remotely with us. So Vu, thank you so much for joining us on the show. No, my pleasure. Thank you for having me today. Absolutely. So just to give our audience a little bit of an idea of where you are now and and your background, Um, you're a Stanford MBA. You started this company. I believe this was the first startup that you ever built yourself. Is that correct? That is correct. Yes. And you started it back in sort of late 2015, if I remember correctly, and uh, very, very quickly you were able to amass a lot of users, which we'll talk about in a couple of minutes. But until now and to date, you have raised $12 million. You have a team of about 50 people. You have millions of users across 100 countries, and you've only been around for a handful of years. So that's really impressive. But did I get those numbers right? That's correct, yes. Awesome. So when I talk to you in the pre-interview, first things first, I mean, we discussed how this the idea for this startup came from a personal pain that you experienced. And a lot of entrepreneurs out there that are compelled to build their own businesses are compelled to go into the entrepreneurial journey, do it because they feel so intimately close to the pain that they're experiencing. And they also feel that other people out there have the same pain. So can you talk about when that idea came to you and what made you decide to actually build something out of this? Yeah, so this idea came to me about a couple of years ago in 2015 when I decided to leave my back then consulting job and figure it out what is the next step in my career. And I had always been passionate about education and see how technology, so besides my MBA at Stanford, I also did my master's in education there with the hope that some days I can use education as part of my passion. So when I left consulting in 2015, I was just talking to a lot of friends who are in the education space about the different challenges that we are still facing in the education world um, these days. And multiple things come up. Uh, There are lots of different education companies that are solving these challenges. But there's one particular area that in one of the conversations with my friends working in the AI that we were talking about how voice recognition technology with the rise of Alexa and Google and Siri and with the rise of deep learning uh, back then will really help people learn to speak better English if there was the right solution for it. And it was really the light bulb that came up in my head because that was my personal challenge that I had when I moved here 10 years ago. I was born and raised in Vietnam. I had been learning English growing up just like a lot of us out there in Asia or just any developing countries. We do know the importance of English and we know that English will really bring new opportunities in their lives, right? And so just like anybody else, I had been spending a lot of time and money in learning English. But when I first moved here in the U.S. about 10 years ago, Stanford, That was when I realized that knowing English is no longer an advantage, but not knowing English well and not speaking it correctly 
is becoming a disadvantage for me. And that was for me because I noticed so many times when I spoke up and tried to integrate into the community at Stanford, um, over and over again, um, either professors or my classmates did not understand me fully. And either they took the time to ask me to repeat. And if they asked me to repeat a few times, I feel really embarrassed. So I decided not to really speak up. Or sometimes they just didn't want to embarrass me and they decided to move on. But that also means that they actually did not fully understand what I was trying to communicate. And it happened in the classroom. It happened in the real life. And and I worked really hard to figure out what are the solutions that could help me solve that challenge for me back then, um, particularly related to pronunciation and speaking. I could read quite well. I could write really well. I probably know a lot of English grammar, more than I actually need. But the speaking is a different story. And so there wasn't anything available um, at all. The only really available solution was a one-on-one -on -one solution with speech therapists where you will sit down with an expert in linguistic and they will be able to tell you the exact errors that you make as you speak. And very transformative experience for me. I never knew the certain mistakes that I made and the, the coach told me and I, I was like, wow, I didn't know that. Nobody ever told me for the last 20 years. And so I really wish that, wow, there must be something that I could get access on a more often regular basis because speech therapist is extremely expensive and very few people get access, right? So there was just a wish for me back then that, hey, somebody should have the solution that's available to more people. Um, and then so fast forward when I was in between transition, figure out what I want to do. This pain point kind of came back to me, reminded me why it was so important for me back then, why there was still no solution available. And that's when we decided that somebody got to do it. And I'm very passionate about the idea. So I figured, why not me? And that's when I jumped right in and then figured out how we can solve this challenge for lots of people who had the same challenge that I had a while ago. Got it. So you obviously experienced the pain yourself and you were around a bunch of other students and, and then colleagues that clearly almost validated the problem for you. But what was the very first thing you did? So did you end up partnering with that person, your friend that you said you identified the issue with? And then what did you guys do? I mean, did you test the market at all or did you just get busy building right away? Oh, we, before I even jumped in, um, I, because uh, there are a lot of language learning solutions already, right? And uh, lots of big solutions as well. And then all of the language learning centers around the world. So I just didn't want to start something that if people already started, it would just be a waste of resources and time to reinvent the world. So I did a huge survey just to understand um, do people really need the solution now? Because it was 10 years ago when I had that challenge, has things changed? So first of all, I did a big survey. I talked to thousands of people globally. And the feedback came back overwhelmingly, reinforcing the belief that somebody should do it. 90% of the people that I talked to said like the skill that they needed help the most with is speaking. And that's also the skill that they are most afraid of when it comes to English. And so, um, and I asked them a lot of different, like, how are you solving that challenge? How are you going, overcoming that fear? And people just give a lot of different answers, but there's nothing really helped them go through that challenge. And so that's the first step that I did before I even jumped in. Second is, I also believe that we need technology, right? That's probably the only way for us to really build a solution that's scalable, that can reach more than 1 billion people around the world, that can keep the cost down at the fraction of a cost of a, an expert teacher that can do it for you. So 
why also took a deep look into whether technology is feasible because we don't want to spend 10 years to build a technology if we're not ready for it yet. So the second step for me was to really go deep dive into the technology aspect of it, understanding whether the uh, artificial intelligence and machine learning and voice recognition technology is at the right time and is ready to handle this kind of challenge as well. So that's what I spend a lot more time on as a second step after I figure out the, the market need. Um, then after the, the technology feasibility analysis and research is done, that's uh, only then that I started building the team and started building the product and jump right in. Now, getting thousands of people even to respond to a survey is no easy feat. So how did you, how were you able to get so many people to reply to you so quickly? So yeah, so we actually, uh, we put out a landing page, a very simple concept and say, if we could do voice recognition technology AI that can help you speak better English, would you be interested in signing up to this waitlist or not? And to our surprise, uh, within a week, we get close to 10,000 people signing up for the waiting list. And that's like extremely, and that's global, and then that's extremely powerful for us to then reach out to them, asking them about the challenges. And where did you share, how did you share it in that first week to get 10,000 signups? Because it didn't just happen by itself, right? So a couple of things that we did. So before we put out that landing page, I actually personally started a campaign, and I call it Love My Voice hashtag. And I share a personal story about how I was almost giving up on a certain uh, dream of mine because I was very embarrassed about my English and nobody understood me and how the other person helped me and to unleash my full potential by improving certain areas that I'm not really good at. And so for that, so I wrote a personal story on my Facebook. I was calling for a few other friends of mine who also had certain voices in the community, uh, lots of people uh, respect them and, and listen to their advice. Also share their own stories about how whether English really make a big impact on their lives or really put them into a very embarrassing position that they never forget. And so everybody started sharing those stories. So we just started with a very few group of friends. And, you know, these stories resonate with so many people. So I didn't really have to convince them at all. And it doesn't take them a week to write it, right? Everybody had these stories somewhere. And so they just uh, really quickly wrote it within the first day that I asked. And then actually, more and more people started writing these uh, people that not even in my circle of friends anymore. And so when so then everybody hashtag that. And then once we launched the landing page, we just went there first and say, hey, here's one of the solutions that will help solve this challenge, will help everybody speak better English, will help get your voice be heard. And, uh, and so that's a seeding of it. Uh, but what really works is that, so within a very few hours, we saw a lot of people started signing up. We actually initially said we only want to open the waiting list for like a thousand people or less. And if we got there, uh, that that's very powerful because we don't even know where to get this 1,000 people. But somehow we noticed that tons of people coming in very quickly through all of these links that we share online with people sharing for us. So we just added another step. We say, hey, now that we have more than 1,000 people, if you guys really want to be on this waiting list that is very small, we will open the VIP list if you invite five of the friends. And if you get five friends to join this waiting list, then you're going to be on top of the VIP list. And so that just went really well. Everybody started inviting more friends coming in and people inviting. So it just keep going very fast. And so, yeah, so within a week or less, we got 10,000 people and we decided that we closed the waiting list because we 
we had more than what we needed and we only need a population in the beginning for us to do some user research, part of research and understand the pain points, right? So we don't need more than that. So, so that's how we got our first few thousand people uh, to be part of our user testing group at the beginning. Interesting. And just to clarify, after the initial survey, did you just go back and sort of add a link to the sign-up page in the same post? Or did you reach out to people that filled out the survey directly? How did you hit those people again to make sure that you got them to sign up to the actual app? So we had that email address and then so we sent out to the community and we do it bash by bash. Um, so, hey, you're going to be the first uh, few that we're going to reach out to get your survey. So these are, you know, these are the people that care a lot about the problems that they have. And so they're very willing to work with you to share exactly what their pain point is. They probably don't know what solution they need, but they can tell you exactly what they need help with, right? And so people are very much engaging in the conversation. People are willing to even go, uh, we even did like phone interviews to get more insights if the survey wasn't good enough. And so yeah, so we email people, we reach back to their Facebook where they share and hashtag us so that we get a direct access to them. And people are very willing to just respond to whatever we need, whether it's a survey, whether it's a phone interview, whether that's an email, you know, that we, we want them to do. Very interesting. Now, talk about how you actually knew how to execute on these different areas of your business, especially as an early stage founder and entrepreneur. Obviously, you were a consultant before that, you had a great education, but the tactics of how to actually do this successfully aren't very clear to a lot of people. So, how did you know what to do? So I think it really depends on what you need at that point, right? So for me, I figured that, hey, very first step is, is this a worthwhile idea to do it? Meaning that the market has a lot of language learning solutions. So why we need another one? And so for me, that was the very first question that I want to ask myself, because again, I don't want to just start up a company just because I want to be an entrepreneur. I want to solve a real challenge. And unless I really figure out that is the real pain point that people need, I don't want to waste my time. I don't want to waste the resources of the society, right? So that's the first question that I want. And so if I'm very clear about the questions that I want to answer, and the first one is, do the market need that? Then I go ask everybody else who has done it before. And I did a lot of research and a lot of my friends who were entrepreneurs you know, I said, hey, if I want to answer this question, what is the right way to answer it? And people say, there's no better way to ask this question than ask the people themselves and ask them why they need it and what are they using right now? Why is that not solving the problem for them and what else they need? And so I said, okay, oh, that sounds simple. So if I just find a few thousand people to talk to, that first question is resolved. So then the second question I said is, where do I find these few thousand people? And I want a big enough sample size of people from different backgrounds so that it's representing um, the need of the market. So then I start going back to all of the people that had done the company, uh, had started the company and asked like, okay, what do we do? And so people share a lot of ideas, right? So being an entrepreneur startup, you have certain gut and intuition. Let's say people recommend you 10 different strategies to do it. You then pick the one that you think you have the best bet of winning based on your prior experience, your network, right? At the very early days, network is really important. Let's say if I said I want to start this Facebook campaign, do I believe I have enough other friends who are influential enough to also help me start the movement? Because if it's just me, it's not going to go anywhere. And so based on my prior experience and people around me, I said, hey, that seems like a really good strategy. I can do that. 
then I go after that approach. Other people might go after like, I don't know, hiring a marketing company to do it because they know how to do that. So I think once you collect the advices from other people about how they did to solve the questions that you have at hand, that's when you use your own intuition and experience, right? We don't start the company. I'm not like, I don't know. I, it's not like I have no experience in life and work so far. So I do know where I'm really strong at and where I can get help. So you kind of pick and choose the advice that you get from other people. And then you go from there. So yeah, so then I started the campaign and then I built the landing page. For that one, it's very easy, right? You just do Google search. It's like the best landing page ever that go viral. And so lots of ideas came and then you just pick and choose what people did well. There's no shame in copying what people did well before because why we're inventing the world when people already went through multiple rounds of iterations to figure out what works for them, right? So then I just went online and learned about what people did. The idea where I get people to sign up for a VIP list and get into um, and inviting other friends, those are not new ideas either. So everybody had done it before. Some people succeed and some don't. The key is once you get an idea, how do you execute it fast? So at that time, the moment that we got an idea, literally we worked through the night to get that referral when the next morning because we don't want to lose that momentum. Uh, if we waited for a week to execute that referral um, idea, the people who had signed up properly already forgot about who we are. And so it's like, oh, what, what is this again? Why do I need to refer people? But if they just signed up yesterday and today we say, hey, actually more people signed up, you want to be a VIP, it's still fresh in their mind. So I think speed in execution is way more important than knowing what to do, right? Lots of people can give you ideas, but how fast can you execute it? And timing is really important. There's a window of time when people respond to you, and there's a window of time that people forget about you. And so how do you catch that window of opportunities on something very important as well? Yeah, I think that's actually a really critical piece of advice. As startups, you have the ability to act on your momentum much quicker than established organizations. And that's exactly what you did. You literally followed up and followed through that same night. But something else that you did that I think mitigated a lot of that early risk, you know, the show is called The Mentors, but there's different ways to surround yourself with people that will give you advice and mentorship. And what you did in that instance is when you didn't know something, you went to people in your network that became kind of your micro mentors. But then the next step after that is to actually take all the advice and distill it into action. Pick the advice that you think is the most useful and then act on it as quickly as possible to make sure that you're getting results. And if you're not getting results, pivot very quickly to doing something that is actually moving your business forward. So you had these 10,000 or so signups that that came rather quickly. What did you do next? You know, how did you decide exactly what you're going to build? How did you keep that list of 10,000 engaged while you were building the product? Yeah, so I think once we get that 10,000 people, I mean, the first few steps is just to really do a deep dive user interview, right? Like to understand, again, as I mentioned, what's their pain points, what are they using right now, why the solutions currently don't resolve their challenges at all. And then we just basically went back, right? Lock our door in and then just started like head down, figure out what solution can we do and how quickly can we bring something to the people so that they can test and say, hey, you're on the right track. And so we just went back and then just like do a lot of like even paper prototyping, we call it, and map out, hey, if we were to do this, what would happen next? And what is the kind of the problem that we can solve for the users? And then we actually had this group of people. We 
um, we scheduled coffee chat with them. So I used to, um, so we started with Vietnam first. So we, we, I moved to Vietnam for a few months because that's the first market that, and from there, I know the market best. Again, as a founder, right, you've got to go where you have the best chance of success. And for me, going out there, I talk the language. I know enough people to help me gather all of these volunteers. So I literally gather a team of volunteers, and every day we meet, like, I don't know, 10, 12 people in the coffee shops just to talk to them day in, like, every single minute of the day showing them the very first screen, hey, does that make sense to you? Showing them the very second screen on paper only, right? Just post it, no, we just do that all the time. And then figure out, does that make sense? Does that not make sense? If we do this, would that be solving the challenge? And we're looking for the aha moment, right? We're looking for like, oh, wow, people's eyes are lit up when they see that, or they said, yes, that is what I'm looking for. I think those are the few early moments that we look for so that we can bring back to the engineer and say, okay, seems like people get this concept, let's build it. Because at the early days, well, we didn't even have a lot of engines. We only had one. So we can't really build that many, but we can test a lot of ideas on papers. And so we went back and do more testing before we build it. Because if we just build it right away, it's going to be a waste of money and time when people don't like it yet. So that early process of doing like in-person user interview to understand and to really get that concept in front of them and see whether it makes sense for them is very, very important because what we had in our head might not be what the users want. And we are not developing the product for ourselves, right? Like we are developing for the for the audience that will be using the product. So unless they understand the product and what it is, regardless of how complicated and how advanced our AI and the technology is, it's not going to work. And so we spend a lot of time in talking to them and how we keep them updated we actually very uh were active in just keeping them uh sending them updates right hey we have talked to so and so how many people we're still looking for more signups if anybody had ideas and then we relay that feedback hey last week we talked to 100 users and they are telling us that this is what important for them and so we relay that feedback to people in the community so we keep that update very regularly with the 10,000 people that we had we also send out their our, our roadmap by when we think that we're going to have something to test, by when we think that we're going to have the first version of the application that they can get their hands on. So keeping that frequent communication help remind them who we are because if we got them, let's say, in July and then we disappear for six months to build the product and by December we show up again, by then, six months in, they probably had signed up for 10,000 other things yeah. and they completely forgot who we are, right? So frequent communication is really important to keep us on the top of the mind of a lot of people that we already got the contact for. I love how you set up the in-person user tests in Vietnam and had not only just a few people, but a lot of people that you can actually start collecting a meaningful amount of data points. And then you kept people up to date by teasing features, by showing them the roadmap, by getting their feedback. That's awesome. You mentioned that you were looking for aha moments and when you were showing those paper prototypes for people. Do you remember what one of those aha moments was or what one of those patterns that you noticed early on in those interviews were that gave you confidence as to what to build? Yeah, so the very first aha moment that we said is, it's like, if I give you the word and you speak it, and I tell you where you're wrong, exactly, 
people would be like, wow, I did not know that was wrong and nobody ever told me before. So if you go very deep into the particular area where they're wrong, let's say, I don't know, um, a very typical example of, let's say, an Indian person speaking English and the confusion between the W and the V sound is very popular, right? So instead of saying, I don't know, uh, water, they say water. And instead of a W sound, they say V. So if they just speak up the word water and then we say, hey, not everything is wrong. The only thing that is not perfectly correct is the initial sound, the W. And the reason why you make that mistake is that you are making the V sound. And the V sound meaning that you have your teeth touching your lips. And so don't do that because if you don't have your teeth touching your lip, then you're going to make the, the W sound. If we show that feedback to people, they were like, wow. Really? Is that that simple? I can fix it? No. First of all, I didn't even know that was wrong. And second, wow, I can fix it easily. That's cool. So that was the kind of feedback that was, you literally see the people lit up. And they were so happy when they were wrong and then they said it again and they're right. And then they got an acknowledgement that they're right. They said, wow, they're so happy. So we see that at that moment. Initially, when we said, okay, there's, there's multiple ways of us giving the feedback to people, right? Like, there's a very complicated academia way of showing the waveform where everything is shown. And then there's also, like, complicated videos or something that you show the movement inside the throat. And people don't even know what, let's say, said, vibrate your vocal cord. And people don't even know what the vocal cord is. They don't even know where that thing is in the, inside their throat. So um, we try so many different uh, solutions. At the beginning, it's very advanced, right? Like all complicated AI and whatnot. It comes down to just point it to me in this particular word went wrong and right and then tell me how to fix it. And so that's the very eye-opening feedback for us is that we don't, users don't care about what goes behind it. They care about what are you telling me and can I understand it? So that's when we actually, from the very first day as we designed inside the app, we keep it very simple. We just show you the word. Every single letter after you speak, we just highlight different color, red, yellow, and green. Red is wrong, green is right, and yellow is roughly okay. And everybody understands those color codes. And so we don't tell them how we did it. We just show them here's right and here's wrong. And then where it's wrong, we just tell them exactly what to do, whether you open your mouth bigger, whether you stick your tongue out. And that's actually with a lot of user feedback before we built that was, even though we had changed the app design so many times to make it more fun and whatnot, that was the fundamental of our app design that we had never changed because that was a, one thing that works really well for our users and actually it didn't come easy for us. It came from rounds, hundreds of interviews with people, showing them hundreds of different versions on the paper before we actually came down to something that we believe is simple enough for people to understand. Very interesting. One common thread that I'm noticing here is that, you know, at the very beginning, when you were first exploring this opportunity, and you posted your own personal story, you clearly elicited emotion in people. And that's why they want to share their own story. And as you were going through this, essentially discovery or validation phase to understand what you should build again, you know, when you were able to elicit true emotion, you got a sense of what might be the opportunity for you to build on. So I think that's a pretty great insight for people. You know, you're probably on the right track if people are attaching emotion to what you're doing. Now, I know that at this point you had about 10,000 users, but we also talked about on the pre-interview how at some point 
and I believe it was the South by Southwest conference where you won a pitch competition, you literally jumped to 30,000 users almost overnight. Was that the next inflection point in the company? And can you talk a little bit about that? And, and when was that after you started building the product? Yeah, it was a huge inflection point for us. And, you know, like I still attributed a lot about early like achievement, a milestone back to that specific milestone because uh, you know once uh, there are millions of apps that got published on app store every day right now and so you're just one of that hundreds of thousands of apps that went up this some app is lucky enough to get picked and be featured and got a lot of exposure and majority of the apps don't right and there's no reason for us to believe that we would be picked up for feature either and so how do we rise above all of those noise and get into the hand of the people is a question not just for me but just for anybody that build an app I'm gonna launch and so what you definitely don't want to put like fifty thousand dollars behind a launch campaign with all of the media and marketing expenses because you just literally don't have that fifty thousand dollars to spend at the beginning so if you're a first-time founder you have never built anything before you have never released and launched anything before and hopefully even if you had raised some money it's probably not the right money to spend on just launch campaign so how do you get these many first like even a thousand user to even know about your product is crucial so for us we actually, um, well, just like a lot of companies, we know about South by it's a huge competition. For me, it wasn't going there to win. It was just really going there to learn from all of the other companies and mentors at that competition about what good about my idea and what's not. So just being able to participate in that competition was actually very eye-opening. But the fact that we won that conference and got a lot of media coverage within a few hours after we won it became very crucial for us because as you mentioned within the first 24 hours after we won the competition actually was also the time that we launched a product we launched Elsa on stage at South by Southwest and uh, it was a story behind it that how we almost couldn't make the launch because the app didn't get approved by Apple either but somehow just literally an hour or even less before I went on stage Apple really came through and approved our product because I was already having a backup story. If, if they didn't approve it, then I couldn't announce that we are launching on stage, but we just can tell people that, hey, we're on beta and we're not launching yet. But half an hour before I got on stage for the competition, Apple came through and then approved it. So then I really announced that, that hey, Elsa is now available on the App Store. Feel free to go and download it. And within 24 hours after we've won that competition, we get 30,000 people downloading the product from all over the world and this is a story that all startup founders usually would like to have is that all oh, our server crashed um, in that 24 hours, right? Because we had way more users than we actually needed. I told my team, it's okay. It doesn't really matter. It's buggy. Just put it up there. Um, nobody's going to download our product anyway. I just want to announce that we're launching so that at least the judge, uh, the judges at the South by can download the product. But that's only five people. Who cares about the rest? <laughs> uh, turn out that we got 30,000 people and my engineers like, hey, you told me there's only five people downloading. Now we had way more people. What do I do? Everything crashed. And so we spent the next 48 hours, no sleep, just to really fix it and get it up for people. But the reason why that moment was so crucial and inflection point is with that 30,000 people, they started sharing the word about Elsa to other people because, you know, as a language learner, most of your friends are language learners. And so they started sharing about the product to other people. So we get all of these free word of mouth that we would have otherwise not know where to get. And then second is we also uh, getting more PR and early stage company 
free PR uh, is really powerful because that's your free way of reaching to millions of people without you paying any single dollar. And so combining effect between the word of mouth from the users that use the product as well as the other factors that we wanted the competition that we got some free PR, it kept the momentum going for a long time. And so we're still getting like months after that. It's not like the one-time effect, right? That, hey, you got this 30,000 people and everything dead. We still get that momentum going on for months after that initial inflection point. So I think that was very crucial for us even the first year just to get all of these. Um, I still remember the first year we got about 700,000 users for free. Never spent a single marketing dollars. We don't even have a marketing person. We actually... Even up until today, we don't even have a marketing person, but um, like in the first year of it, it was very crucial. Now, you mentioned word of mouth and you mentioned that the media attention was what gave you that bump, but were there any, was there any way in the product that you incentivized sharing or you had any kind of virality built in? Because going from 30,000 to 700,000 is very substantial. No, we, I mean, we wish that we had something to build in, but, you know, we were focusing very much on the core value proposition of the product. We actually, for a long time, we didn't worry about so much about adding all of the other elements because I'm a strong believer in if your product is really good enough, people will share. Now, you just make it easier for them to share by adding all of the other features, but if it's so good that people want it, they're going to go through all of these hurdles to share for you anyway because if I find something useful for myself I definitely gonna tell everybody else they should use something I, I, I do it in my daily life right like uh, like for example when I went through pregnancy and motherhood if I find something that I feel like is life-changing for me as a mother I go tell all my mom's friends is that you guys gotta do it because it's changed your life and so I do believe that and even the product can be really bad I'm like hey you definitely should use it it's there's certain things that's not working, but it's better than nothing. So I'm a strong believer in that core value proposition of the product. So actually in the early days, we don't have any mechanism for people to share. And so I still have like screenshot from the early days where people took the picture of the screenshot, like posted on their Facebook or their Instagram or their Twitter and everywhere very manually. And then other people started posting the same thing, even though we had no mechanism to share at all. Because building those takes time. And, I read, and again, in the early days where you have so few people, uh, we as a team need to figure out what is most crucial features that can bring the best experience for people so that they can learn the best and then everything else come later. And so for years, we don't even have the mechanism to, for people to share because there's still so many other core crucial things that we, we had to do to get the product to a really good place. Now, at what point did you decide to raise money? Were you guys generating revenue already here or did you raise angel or seed money before that? Because I know that about a, maybe two years ago, you raised around $3 million, but what was the funding situation before that? So we, I raised some angel money, and the moment to decide to raise money, really it comes down to the founder. So it's hard to say when is the right time, but at least for me, the moment when I decided to raise money is after I did all of the research that know that, hey, there's a big market here, and secondly, I had high enough confidence that I'm the right one, to, my team is the right team to do it. And we know what to do and we know how to solve the challenge. 
right? So I had to, especially from the technical feasibility, because again, we had to build an AI, a voice recognition technology. It's very naive to say that, hey, we can just do it. So until I get a very high confidence that I can do it, I don't want to waste money from investor. And my very early round is an angel investor, meaning that these are people who know me, either know me very well or know know me enough that trust me and I don't want to, burn all of these bridges by by wasting people's money right so for me the moment once i actually had these thousands of people signing up for the waiting list i did a survey and then so did some technical feasibility to know that hey the market is there and i know enough to figure it out and to build a team that can help me build this technology that's when i decided to raise some angel money now it really depends on how much saving you have because the earlier you raise money in i mean you have some the moment that you got you brought outside money in that's when you are responsible for other people right and so you really have to balance between how much cash savings that you have do you want to be financially stressful because i still remember the early months when i still spend my savings on everything it's, um, you know, when you realize that there's no influx of cash to go into your bank account, but everything is an outflow, it goes down really fast. And you have enough stress at the beginning. You don't want to stress yourself out by not having, I don't know, enough money to eat, right? So that's when you decide, is that worth it to raise the money? Are you confident that you will be spending the money wisely from all of the people that trust you at the beginning to give you the money for and um, do you even have time to raise money because raising money takes time right in the beginning you have to be your product so there's multiple factors for me to decide that hey it's time for me to to bring in a, a quick angel round so that i don't have to worry about financials for a while and then i can invest the time on hiring the people and building the product and how quickly did it take you to put together an initial angel round my initial round was just a week and a half. It's quick. Again, as I said, if I believe that I can raise this round really quick, I would do it because I don't want to spend three months. In, because in that three months, many things can happen, right? Like you realize that your product doesn't make sense anymore and you realize that the technology doesn't make sense anymore and so on and so forth. So if I spend that three months just raising money, that would be so valuable time that's wasted. So I said, if I could confidently put in the round within a week or two, then I would do it. And so that was the timeline I did. Myself. Is that because you had already, and I know you're in Silicon Valley, but is that because you already had investors in your network? Well, I had a lot of friends who hypothetically had been investor or would be open, like have a big enough pocket that would be open to invest, right? So again, based on your own network, I know enough people that had been investing in other companies before, or they know people who be investing so the moment that i say hey let's raise i already had the list of the people that i potentially want to reach out for and uh, very early rounds when it's angel round people invest in your vision and dream and primarily they invest in you they trust that you're the right person who's going to use the money wisely um very little about the ideas because everybody knows companies will change and pivot the ideas all the time anyway but it's like if you are facing the hardship and the idea doesn't make sense or you're the right person to turn it around. And so very early on, again, I have to know that there's enough people who believe in me and give me the money. And I don't just go ask money lightly, right? I don't want to, you know, owe it to somebody at some point. So I have to also be very selective about who I reach out for to get this route. But yeah, it's just within my network of the people that I know already through Stanford, actually my majority of my angel investors were from Stanford Network. And so your mentors, um, actually, not just the money. Uh, one thing that I forgot to mention, the angel round is not so much about the money. It's the people that will act as your early mentors very early on. So these are the people that potentially 
um, have been there, done that, and know the challenges that you are going through, and will be able to give you the advice as well. Because money is only going to get you so far. Um, getting the right advice early on will help you cut through so many mistakes that you could potentially make. Right? So I was also very uh, specific about who I want to get the money from. So your co-founder, Dr. Xavier Anguera, he's the one that has a background in uh, speech recognition and AI. Did you meet him at Stanford as well? No. So he's, that's a different story. I actually spent six months to look for him and I met him at a conference in Germany. So he's not somebody that I had known before, but he was somebody that I specifically had been spending a lot of time in looking for as my co-founder, somebody who had the He's like a top expert in voice recognition technology who basically knows everything inside out about this technology and what we needed to build. And there's very few of them um, actually even exist in the world. And fewer of them actually want to quit their high paying job uh, and to go uh, pursue something very risky that, um, that could or could not work at all. And so I literally spent uh, a good six months. And then there was this conference in Germany where it's the, the biggest voice recognition technology conference around the world. Every year it happens in New City, and that year it happened in Germany. So I flew to Germany, and I went there. I spent five, six, seven days uh, going around the conference. I was probably the only non-PhD participant there who had no presentation to present. We were just there to look for my co-founder, and so I would just literally go and talk to talk to every single expert there and figure out who could be my right co-founder and then Javier came as one of those people that I talked to that um, that would be a really good fit for us and then so we spent more time after the conference getting to know each other and once we realized that hey we are the, the right fit for each other that's when I invited him to be my co-founder and CTO. And how did you convince him like you said you know to leave a high paying job and to join this risky thing is this already when you removed some of that risk a little bit? Yeah, so a couple of things that I did. Uh, first of all, I actually, by the time that I met him, I already had a prototype, like a version that it looks really ugly, but it's on the app. So it's a prototype that actually worked. Um, the fundamental is there. So I really get that build up uh, and showed it to him. And even though he was an expert in voice recognition, he had known this concept on paper, but to see it in real life and to see it work, somewhat he was very impressed it's like how do you even build this one um and yes the technology back then was not accurate because it was the early prototype but the fact that it worked and it showed the concept was really powerful so it showed it to him that well the concept uh, works really well but second is that i'm very serious about it um, i'm not just like randomly think of an idea overnight and then start now going around asking people right so by that time i actually already had um the putting enough effort and time um, into that um, as well. So showing that you care enough, uh, you're strongly passionate in there, but you're also as serious about it was very, very important. I think the other factor that helped me convince uh, these top experts to work and join hands with me is that I already at that time had a really good technical advisor. He's basically the legacy in voice recognition technology. A lot of people know him. So when my now co-founder saw his name as my advisor, he was literally blown his mind it's like how do you even convince that person to be your advisor some something must be really special about you and the company and he had always been wanting as a researcher he actually had been wanting to personally work with that uh, professor and advisor himself and so for him the chance to join me so that he can work with this top uh like um famous uh, researcher 
is another big plus, right? You know, researchers, they, they love working with famous researchers because that's for them, that's the best way for them to, to learn new things. And so that's the second factor that was actually very important. But I think the third one is timing. I met my co-founder, CTO, at the time that he was just really tired of just doing research and just keep publishing good papers, but doesn't see the, 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 the true impact of it in real lives. And so he actually had attempted to do some startup on his own, but it didn't work because he was very good at building the technology. But then again, just like he just put it up out there and nobody saw the product, nobody used the product. And so he didn't know how to get it out to the people. Um, so for him, he met me at the perfect time when he said he, he's ready to move on, but he just didn't know what to do. And so then I'm like, then here I am. Uh, you can just focus on building what you know best and don't worry about the rest. I will be able to help you with everything else. And so those are the few elements that may risk for him, right? Like some part of the product is already there. Actually, by the time I met him, we already had that 10,000 people in the waiting list. So he actually was very impressed with that. He was so very excited actually. that, wow, we have people wanting the product and this 10,000 people, that's a lot of people. So I think that's also another factor that we risk for him that, hey, people want it. We already get people on the waiting list, so there's nothing to lose. And I think the last one is just timing, right? If I meet him a year earlier when he's like, probably still want to start his own company and don't want to join with anybody, that's probably too early. Or if I met him a year later when he's like, happy to go back to his research and already give up on his entrepreneurship dream, that's probably too late. So I think timing, just like anything in life, timing is crucial and meeting a co-founder at the right time and convincing them at the right time is also very crucial for us. Exactly. And you weren't just sitting there waiting for the co-founder to show up. You weren't just hoping that somebody was going to get attracted to the opportunity based on the size of the market alone. You were actually executing, getting those users, doing the hard work that's required of a business co-founder, which is why, again, you were able to track the investment quickly, I believe, and, and establish that trust with investors, and of course, your, your co-founding partner as well. So let's fast forward now to wrap up the interview and talk about where Elsa now is now. <laughs> um, if you could share um, as much details you can provide around, oh, I mean, I know you, you're at about 50 employees now, so obviously you grew significantly and I'm sure your job changed, but if you can also talk about any numbers you can share in terms of users and or revenue and the challenges that you're tackling now. Yeah, so we right now we have about 7 million users from more than 100 countries in the world. Majority of our users are in uh, Southeast Asia, India, Japan, uh, as the few early markets that we invest in. Um, and we started seeing a lot more users coming from Latin America, say Brazil, for example. Um, majority of our users have a very strong motivation to improve their English either for better job opportunities or better education opportunities because they do believe that it will change their life and so we are there to help them with that confidence and then we just help them unlock all of the opportunities we have team from different places we're truly global in the sense that we serve a very global consumer base but we also have a very truly global team that sit everywhere we probably catch on the trend of like remote working earlier than a lot of the companies but it seems to be the trend now so actually even in the early days when we have teams so global we had a professor at stanford that was joking with me and say if you later on become successful i will write a case study about you on how being global at the early days really helpful but if you didn't succeed i will still write a case about you and telling you how being global earlier 
is not really the right strategy. So either way, we win, right? Um, but anyway, we're a very global team. We have team here in the Bay Area. We have team in Europe, in Portugal, Lisbon. We also have team in India, in Japan, in Vietnam, in Indonesia as well. For us, as we serve a global user base, we believe that being closer to the user is important and talent is everywhere. So uh, we just invite the best talent, regardless of where they are in the world, to come and join us. And so everybody is extremely mission-driven. Like the single one question I asked, so why did you decide to join ELSA? Everybody really said either they personally see the challenge themselves or they know their family members or friends who could totally benefit from it and have been struggling with it. And so they want to be a part of this mission to really help their friends, their family members, or themselves, or just everybody to speak better English. And so we're very proud of that culture that people are very mission-driven. They would give up on the other companies and make their jobs and, and whatnot just to join in and and, and because they see the impact of what they are doing on a daily basis. So that's something that's fun. That's incredible to hear. And just to clarify, what's the business model for the product and the business? It's a subscription model. So they get seven days for free. And then after that, they pay a monthly subscription fee. Um, it's anywhere between 3 to $5 a month so that they can unlock all of the content curriculum inside the app. So it's uh, super affordable for just about anybody in the world. And gotcha. we actually, there's one thing, you know, like with the entire coronavirus going on, we actually, uh, it's, it's early, but today or tomorrow, we're actually announcing that we're going to put it out for free for all of the students all over the world because everybody now with school closure and everything, they probably won't get access to education easily anymore. And so we, mm. we're one of the few solutions that could just help everybody continue to stay home and learn English. Clearly staying true to your mission to actually have an impact on people and um, uh, you're doing that now with the new circumstances as well. Vu Van, it's really inspiring to hear your story. I think a lot of entrepreneurs can learn from how resourceful you were to get this company off the ground. Uh, and I'm sure that part of your attitude in actually doing all this hard work was driven by your passion with the problem and the fact that you actually really cared about helping people across the globe. And with 7 million users, you're obviously doing that. Um, if you want to learn more about Elsa and Elsa Now, just go to elsanow.io. That's E-L-S-A now.io or type in Elsa Now in your iTunes or Google Play Store search bar and I'm sure you'll find the app. And again, try it out for a week, see um, if it can help you. And it looks like now you might even get some more additional functionality for free uh, with extending circumstances. Vuvan, thank you so much for joining us on the show and we're looking forward to following the progress of your business further. No, thank you so much for having me again.